Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Silver on the Sage podcast. I'm going to kick off this episode with a quick reminder for you to start planning ahead for the 2023 Philmont Wrangler reunion. Events will take place June 30th through July 2nd in Red River, New Mexico. You'll be able to enjoy live entertainment by the Rifters and the 2022 Texas Country Music Female Artist of the Year, Sarah Hobbs. Gather at the Red River Conference Center to relax, reminisce, and share your stories for historical data collection of the old Philmont Horse Department. The reunion will conclude with a benefit auction, and proceeds will go to the PSA in order to help support the Livestock Department and the Maverick Club. And if you're able, be sure to stick around and enjoy the 100th Maverick Club Rodeo in Cimarron on July 4th and the 50th PSA Anniversary Celebration happening July 2nd through the 8th. Check out the official Philmont Wrangler Reunion website, which I will link below in the show notes. You can browse auction items, share photos, consider sponsorship contributions, and you can RSVP for the event. I hope to see you there. All Philmont staff are welcome to attend and participate. All right, now for today's episode. So to recap our month of love for Philmont and New Mexico, we've highlighted history, relationships, spirituality, and today we focus on the land and conservation. Seth Mangini kicks it off discussing his early Philmont career in the backcountry and conservation department. He shares stories of Black Mountain, Miranda, fall cabin restoration, invasive species, and more. And we give some love to the actual trails at Philmont and the substantial manpower to design, build, and maintain them. Seth describes the Philmont network of trails as top-notch and world-class. In part two of this episode, we focus on the current restoration project happening on Bonito Creek. This three-year project, funded by the state of New Mexico and the EPA, supports a five-person stream restoration crew. They work to build erosion control structures in the watershed. As the project lead and doctoral candidate, Seth goes into detail to discuss the valley morphology of Bonito Creek in order to help us understand the timing and impacts of arroyo erosion in a wet meadow system. As always, thank you for being here and highlighting special reasons why we love Philmont during this month of February. Folks, I'm here today with Seth Mangini, and Seth, you and I worked together for a few summers. We overlapped seasonally, so uh, definitely excited to talk to you today about your work with conservation, uh, your work with st- stream restoration, and just uh, fun stories. If we Some s- strolls down memory lane, if you will. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you coming from tonight? Are you in Bozeman? Yeah, I'm in Bozeman, Montana. Is that where are you from? <laughs> I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and then I went to college in Cleveland, and then I worked at Philmont for a whole long time, and then moved to Montana about 12 years ago, and then I've been uh, filtering back into the Philmont scene the past three years for this 
stream restoration project. Awesome. Well, I feel like living a life between Bozeman, Montana and Cimarron, New Mexico is like a pretty nice gig. So I'm happy for you. Thanks. Yeah, I hope to keep it up. It's been uh, it's a good thing. Good. (laughs) Well, do you want to take it way back? Um, Did you go on track? Yeah, I went on two tracks, actually. I went on one when I was 15. And that was great. We did our conservation project at Lover's Leap. I remember it was like our very first day. And we, you know, did the whole range orientation thing. And we hiked like whatever, three quarters of a mile. And they're like, oh, well, you guys are going to build trail here. And we went and set up our camp really quick at Lover's and came back. And I think I just like sledged on some rocks for like three hours. And I had this white t-shirt on and it was just filthy. It was so dirty that I was like, oh, I'm not going to wear this the rest of the trek, which of course I ended up doing because what else are you going to wear? Yeah. Um, and then I just remember like one of my scoutmasters being like, whoa, you seemed like you really enjoyed that. You know, maybe maybe we see some career options coming here. And I was like, yeah, whatever. It was fun. You know, let's go hike. But in reality, you know, I was 15 and I was like utterly terrified of like, you know, will I be able to keep up? You know, it's am I going to be able to climb that mountain? You know, all the things that I think everybody thinks about. And But yeah, yeah, first day kind of set the tone. And then I did a second trek. I was 20 Hmm. and my cousin was supposed to go. And then he dropped out at the last minute. He had some kind of something come up. And my aunt and uncle were like, well, why don't you just go in his spot? You know, and I remember hiking around and being like, wow, um, why am I not working here? You know, because I was running into all these people and they were like, well, you're old enough to work here. You know, and I, I met all these people that then the next year when I was on staff, I recognized them and I was like, oh, my gosh, you're like the girl from Abreu or you're <laughs> the guy from Phillips Junction or, you know, you're the you taught us to milk a goat, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. So then did you come back the next summer on staff in 2004? Yes. 2004 was my first year on staff. So back you, in the day, it seems like only yesterday. Like you worked, I can't even count this right now, but like over 10 seasons at Philmont and you're still working out there. I worked seven seasons. And so it's like sometimes in the back of my head, a memory will pop up. And then other times it's like, oh, I totally forgot that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that that definitely happens. But yeah. the first year, I remember the fir- probably the first two summers are among the most vivid. Oh, okay. Just because, you know, it was, yeah, I don't know, it was well, like this first time away from home, really. And you're like, oh my gosh, what's, you know, not colleges, college isn't really doesn't count as really away from home i don't think but like yeah you know, black mountain was, was the first time away from home you know and i was like one of the younger guys on staff at that point you know and everybody else like josh the camp director and steve wurzel you know they had like these giant beards and i could like barely grow a beard and i was like oh my gosh it was like very intimidating but i just remember thinking all right i'm just gonna like work as hard as i can and like keep my head down and like hopefully this will work out and you know it, it, it did i guess in time I was going to say, I I think it's kind of uncommon, maybe not, for a first year to get PC Black Mountain because you're like, like you said, you're like down in the hole. You're like out out there. No yeah. road. No it road. was like dream job right there. Yeah. And I yeah. think really there was two of us that were first year staff members. And I think what happened was like somebody must have dropped out last minute because I was kind of a late hire. And... You know, it, I didn't go to Black Mountain on my track, so I wasn't totally sure what to expect. But I knew it was like a place that didn't have a road. And I was like, perfect. That is that is what I want. You know, I'm yeah. happy. Yeah. Okay. And Definitely then my vibe. Yeah, I, I can see you being happy there. And then in 2005, you were PC Miranda. 2006, you came back CD Black Mountain. So those were kind of your three years in the backcountry before you then moved into conservation. 
but I don't want to skip over the backcountry years. So like stories, memories, like did you hike Black Mountain several times? Or... I hiked Black Mountain once. Ah. I hiked it twice in my life. Once when I was on staff there. And I think it was somewhere midsummer, probably, you know, and it had been really busy. The thing they don't tell you about Black Mountain is like, it's really busy down there. You, even when you don't see a lot of scouts, you have two hour long programs that you have to do with them. So, you know, even if you only have five crews, it's really the same amount of program as if you had 10 crews at, at Miranda, for instance, where you only had really one program. And I love Miranda too, by the way, shout out to Miranda. Um, Yeah. And I remember josh being like you know why don't you take a day off in the field and i was like all right i'm gonna do this epic hike so i like hiked up black mountain and down to schaefer's pass and back through north fork Iraq and back to black which like at the time never having done that you know felt pretty epic and you know wasn't like i had like a gps i had like a paper map gis yeah. was like barely a thing and you know the trails aren't were kind of like generalized and you know there was times where you're like i hope i'm where i think i am hikes black again for only the second time this past summer, I like talked to a couple of my crew members into doing super black death on our, <laughs> some of our days off from the stream project, you know, and it was great. Like the one gal, she had like never hiked before in her life. She was kind of new to the whole film on scene. She was a great worker and great crew member, but like, let's go do black again and or super black. And she was like, you know, and the, me and this other girl kind of pressured her. And she like, you know, shows up with like a hoodie and like, she's like, well, I brought some food. And she had like a little container of like paper carton of like leftover Chinese food, <laughs> which immediately like broke open in her pack and went everywhere. And then like, <laughs> you know, and she had like a little water bottle. Um, so those are the two times we hiked Black Mountain. Yeah. I hiked Black. And then, yeah, the first time I remember it being very hard, but very short. And then the second time was, of course, like hiking it all the way from like Clear Creek. Um, it seemed a little longer. Yeah, we got to black from Clear Creek at sunset. We didn't start super black until like twelve thirty in the afternoon. <laughs> it was kind of a late start, and then we hiked until like six o'clock the next morning. <laughs> Finally, so okay, remind me, remind me yeah. what super black is. So you started. Oh, it's uh, you hike start at Clear Creek. You go up Mount Phillips, down to Comanche, Big Red, Bear, Black, Schaefer's Tooth Base Camp. Got it. And I okay. think regular Black Death, I had to Google this ahead of time because I wasn't totally sure, but I think it's you just start at Black Mountain Camp, go up Black Mountain, and then hike the ridgeline into base. Nice. Nice. <laughs> so. Yeah. Black Mountain holds a special place in my heart. I just think it's oh, a yeah. really cool camp. It. I remember my first summer was 2007, and I was at Bobien, and I would hike over to Black on days off because someone told me to go there. And I just remember the hike there and like going down into the, the canyon. It's just like... It's like, this is here. <laughs> uh, and then the program and the even the little cabin, everything about it is just, I don't know, there's some magic down there. It is magic. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. one of my biggest memories from that first year was like walking down from the Adirondack mm -hmm. down through that little wet meadow of California corn lilies and looking at the cabin. And I was, I think, the happiest I'd ever been in my life at that point. And I was like, thought to myself, I was like, this is how people are meant to live. And it was just like this eye-opening thing that I was just, I was just happy. And yeah. that's, that's probably my most profound memory of Black Mountain. Yeah. You know, all the shenanigans and the good times and the crazy SARS and the thunderstorms and everything aside, you know, and the crazy crew members, 
Yeah. No, that's beautiful. Um, yeah. I, I wish I was still living there. <laughs> I wish I, Me too. I, I, mean... I, I haven't asked anybody this yet, but I'm really hoping when I graduate, hopefully in December, if they, I'm going to try and ask and see, be like, well, they just let me go spend a month or so, or at least a few weeks living in the cabinet black during the winter. And I can just like build fires and like read books and ski around or hike around, depending on what it is. And then come back up here to Montana and maybe do the same at, at our old ranger station where I worked before I went back to school and like just spend like two months living in the back country and in the winter. I don't I don't even know if you need to ask. I think you should just do it. I mean who's I gonna, think so too. Who's yeah. gonna if, like notice if, you're if anybody in, in management is listening right now, just look the other way. Yeah. <laughs> January, February, we'll be all good. <laughs> yeah, Black Mountain. Okay. So uh do any any um insights from your summer at Miranda before we hop into conservation? Yeah. So I remember going to Miranda when I worked at Black in 04. And I hiked up and I remember seeing like one of the interp staff members. And I remember being very disappointed at first because it had a road Uh. and it was very beautiful, but it had a road. (laughs) And one of the staff members came out and they like weren't even in their interps. I can't remember what this guy was, what his name was, but he came out and he had like a, you know, the blue cool Mac shirt on. And I was like, oh man, this is lame. Like, come on, act the part, you know? (laughs) <laughs> um, but the next year when I got hired there, I remember being kind of a little disappointed to not be going back to black again. But like then when I got there and I got to work for Bucko Cowden and then yes. our the other PCs there um, were Daniel Harrell, who went by Beave. Apparently Beaver had been his nickname since childhood. And so it worked out perfectly for the fur trapper thing. And then Corey Pedersen and then Seth Schwartz. And honestly, at the end of that summer, I probably had at least as good of a time as I had at black in 04. Like it was a, but it was the crew that really made that, you know, we just, we just vibed and we had a lot of, a lot of very good times and working for, for Bucca was awesome. And the whole mountain ball thing. I remember like I hadn't played any kind of baseball since I was like, whatever in third grade instructional league. And then here we go with mountain ball. And I was, I had a blast, man. I was like, I, I hope they're still doing it there. I don't know if they are or not. I'm kind of out of that loop, but like mountain ball, top notch, good time. Yeah. You know, and we had like this, we had the, you know, the usual assortment of burrow wranglers. They were all cool. We had like three or four of them. And I remember one of them stands out in my mind very much. His name, (laughs) I don't know his real name, but he went by Arkansas and he was, you know, if you're out there listening, Arkansas, just, I'm going to tell some stories about you. Um, (laughs) We would get like these evals and Bucko would bring them back and he would be like, guys, you're not going to believe of all of us who is getting like favorite staff member the most. And we're like, who? And he's like, Arkansas. And we're like, what? And he's like, yeah, he's telling crews that mountain lions and bears are stalking them from just out of sight. And then he goes ripping off on his horse into the woods going, yeah, with like his lasso and his cowboy hat, waving it around and telling them that he saved their lives. And so like these scouts like believe this you know, and then he would, yeah, he would come back to the cabin. I remember one time he like brought a burrow into the cabin at Miranda. It wasn't a very big burrow, but we got it out. Uh, it could have gone worse. Fortunately, it didn't freak out. Um, but then he like sat down and he was like, guys, when I get back to, to Arkansas, I'm a wealthy guy. I have a $50,000 stud mule. 
And we're like, a stud mule. And he's like, yep, a stud mule. $50,000. Every time he said it, he had to like include the price. Like, couldn't just be a stud mule, which to this day, I'm fairly certain that that's not how mules work. But like, you know, yeah. I'm not I'm not a horse guy. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but like, yeah, he would he would tell us about his $50,000 stud mule. And, uh, you know, he tucked his jeans into his cowboy boots and he had very colorful cowboy boots and long black hair. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and we had these other guys. We had like Lee Leatherwood and this other yes. guy named Zach. I don't remember his last name. And like they yeah. were totally cool guys and like very chill. But like I have to say of those burrow wranglers, like Arkansas is the one that has given me the best stories over the years. There's some other ones I probably won't repeat on here but you know, fair, you know it goes. fair enough fair enough yeah um lee leatherwood was my was the ring was the horseman at bobian in my summer in 2007 okay yeah he's he been awesome. around a while i haven't do you keep up with him i can't find him anywhere yeah me neither so but he was he was awesome yeah yeah he was yeah yeah he, he was he was an interesting one too in some ways mm-hmm. i remember he he got very much into in the same way that like leadership and conservation for a while would get into very short shorts and you had like, you know, not to name any names, Michael <laughs> Sirio Johnselli um, got like a sewing machine in the cabana and would like go and like hem up their short shorts so that they were like, <laughs> they were like booty shorts after a while. And like, it was absurd. But Lee Leatherwood decided he was going to go with like the tightest fitting jeans and uh-huh. the horse department, like so tight that he like couldn't sit down yeah. almost. And he had like this thing <laughs> of cocoa butter and he'd be like in the morning and he'd be like, yep. I come in, you know, I shave my legs and then I lather up with cocoa butter so that I can lubricate my pants onto my body, you know, and he'd like try and sit down at the breakfast table and you're like, man, is he going to like bust the seam on his butt of his pants? I don't know. It was, it was <laughs> Lee was in. Yeah. I remember, I remember some other goings on. He got some stories about Lee too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. The infamous jello wrestling of uh, Bobby N in the summer of 06. That was a Lee. Lee going on. Bucko was there too, but Bucko was always discreet enough to like take an afternoon off officially when when such things were going to happen. But yeah, <laughs> uh, just like we were talking about earlier, like I hadn't thought about Lee for for a while, and here we are. Uh, good times. So, two thousand six, you hung out fall maintenance. Fall maintenance was when I graduated college. Yeah, nice. so I was like, I need summer was wrapping up, and I needed a job. Yeah. So you just stayed at Belmont. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good, so good call. I applied for Autumn Adventure and got rejected and was very hurt. And then uh, actually Rick Smith, Dirty Rick of all people was like, I didn't know him very well at that point. And he was like, oh, I heard you got rejected from Autumn Adventure, but I'm on cabin rest and we still have uh, two spots to fill. Yeah. I don't know. He was like, talk to Jim Coots. And I was like, all right, who's that? And he like pointed out this guy in a cowboy hat that looked like very intimidating and tall. And so I like walked over and was like, excuse me, Mr. Kutza, I'm looking for a job for the fall. And he was like, asked me where I worked. And then John Vandries was sitting next to him. And he's like, John, write this guy's name down, put him on cabin rest for the fall. And I was like, yes, John. Nice. And then they hired Corey Pedersen too. Yeah. And so it was the three of us and they gave us a single cab pickup truck. That cabin rest experience was awesome. And with that single, single cab pickup truck, of course, like, you know, we would, we were fair. We would take turns who rode and like who drove which I didn't know know how to drive stick going into that. And they just gave me a truck that was like a stick and we're like, have fun. So we vibed. And then, uh, yeah, Corey and Rick, and we'd rotate who sat in the middle. And like, whenever it was Rick's turn to sit in the middle, 
he would like straddle the gear shifter and like slide forward in the seat. So you had to like <laughs> practically like reach into his crotch in order to shift gears. And he thought that was hilarious. Yeah. And the, the bed of this truck, it was C29. <clears throat> and uh, like the bed was on the verge of falling off and it was held to the frame of the truck with a ratchet strap. And the passenger side door didn't open from the inside. And so you had to roll down the window, reach outside and open it that way, which worked. Sure. Except for like, at one point, I think I didn't roll the window down the whole way without thinking about it. Oh, and you had to really slam it too. <laughs> and so I like slam the door and all of a sudden I just hear like, this shattering noise and my heart was shattered and the whole window just shattered and fell down into the door. Oh no. And it was fairly late in the fall. And cool. Yeah. So we had to like put duct tape and plastic over where the window had been and then still reach through through the plastic to like open and shut the door. This truck. Or man. just jump in. Yeah, it was a great <laughs> truck. Okay. So <laughs> would you say I was going to ask you, like, how did you make the the switch from from backcountry into cons? Was it just that? Yeah, I will say it was completely <laughs> voluntary. <laughs> I had always been curious about conservation. I remember, you know, my first couple seasons as a PC, you know, and like the work crews would come rolling into camp and they'd have like mullets and like headbands on and like Carhartt coveralls and they'd have these enormous backpacks. And it was just like, and they just like get to work. They wouldn't like even like hardly talk to you. They'd just be like, and like they'd be doing stuff and digging holes and all dirty. And they're all like gruff and had big, bigger beards than me. And like, <laughs> I remember being like, oh man, I don't know if I could really hang with those guys, but I would like to try maybe someday. But at that point, you know, I was like, I don't know when that'll be, if that'll ever be. But yeah, when I was a camp director at Black, you know, there might have been, you know, it was my first leadership experience. I'd always, I had grown up, so to speak, hearing from my camp directors about like all these like badass Black Mountain camp directors of the past that had just like done things like self-gather and, you know, <laughs> didn't need anybody. And like that's you, you hear all these stories and I, most of them you you can't repeat um, and I won't. But, you know, you, you grow up thinking like, oh, man, I've got one it plants some ideas where you're like, oh, that'd be really cool. Um, and two, you're like, oh, man, I got to like. I got to run with these guys. Like, you know, I can't just be like the guy that followed the rules, you know? <laughs> so I don't know. I got this idea that like, maybe we were going to, you know, would just, why wait for the truck? You know, we have burrows, we have backpacks, you know, most of the stuff stays at black mountain in the winter. Any, anyway, all the foamies cooking gear and everything. Like if we plan it, you know, we'll just, uh, I guess self gather, if you will. And so, yeah, kind of like planned it out for probably maybe the last month of the season. And we like got our uniforms and we like washed them and pressed them and made them look really good. And we made a battle flag. And the idea was like we were going to march to the backcountry warehouse with all of our stuff and we were going to stack arms and like, you know, whatever decommission for the season like right in front of like Doug Palmer. I don't know why I thought that was a good idea or that he thought that would be entertaining. But like, you know, I, I thought that, you know, we had this sweet battle flag, which is still in the black mountain cabin. And then, you know, I kind of like planned it out ahead of time. Lee Leatherwood. I uh, was like, all right, Lee, we're going to be bringing some burrows in. Will you be a cattle headquarters? So we had it planned out to like take the burrows to cattle headquarters after we dropped everything off. 
And then I had talked to Bucko too, who had been my former camp director the year before. And I had filled him in on my whole plan. And he was like, oh yeah, man, you should totally do that. You are saving the ranch time and money. And like, so I was like, all right, we're doing it. And so we did. And uh, it, the only thing that didn't really work out was that there was this crew that came through on the day before our gather, which was when I was going to gather us. And they hung out until like two in the afternoon, maybe. And in my mind, we still had to be responsible. So I wanted to let them get down to Miners Park. Or I think they were staying at North Fork Yoraka. Anyway, before we like just peaced out, wanted to make sure they were like reasonably, we were reasonably sure they were out of our area of responsibility and into Miners Parks. So we didn't actually get started hiking until like four and it started pouring rain. And so we had this very interpretive experience where we hiked up to Bobien and down over Fowler Pass in this pouring rainstorm with like, you know, our, our rifles, which we put plastic around and like our battle flag and full interpretive uniforms. And we had bacon and we had made hard tack and we built a, a fire on the top of Fowler Pass and we had our little like steel kettle and we made a cup of a pot of coffee and all did it, you know, like we were like real soldiers and then marked down through like the ankle deep mud past Crater Lake on that road, which is a, you know, they've done work on it now, but back then it was like just this soup. And we finally, I think, made it in at like, made it to Lover's Leap turnaround. It was like 10 o'clock at night or something. And we were all really wet and really cold. And I was just like, all right. And we took the burrows down and we dropped everything off at like in one of, in a, in a car. And then, yeah. And we all went to the bar and I can't imagine why our, my backcountry managers, Jackie Clark, and uh, Martin Gibson just uh, weren't totally happy to see me. I don't know. I, I couldn't figure that out for a little while. <laughs> um, but they like, you know, there was a, there was a little gravity involved there where like I came back to earth and was like, oh, you know, and Martin was like, you'll never work here again. Which was the real reason that it became even sweeter when I got hired onto cabin rest like three days later um, <laughs> for the fall. Because I was like, Woof, <laughs> I still can work here. Anyway, so yeah, the next year I figured that was the time to uh, maybe try a different department. And once again, actually, I went to Rick Smith. He was like, hey, because I think Rick had had some rough times with the backcountry department as well due to his own fault, much as mine was due to my own fault. Um, and so he was like, yeah, dude, cons is where it's at. Come on by. We got a work crew position, a work crew foreman position. I was like, well, I've never even been on work crew. And he's like, don't worry, it's fine. <laughs> and so, yeah, I like ended up like trying to like fake it for the whole next year as like a work crew foreman. I don't know. We just dug a lot of latrines and cut a lot of blowdowns. And it's, it's really, if you're willing to work hard, it's not really, you know, you can do it. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah that's, that's where we are uh, ended up. And then another fall on cabin rest. Very magical. I, I had heard about the, the self gather year at Black Mountain, but I didn't know that was you, Seth, until just now. So, yeah, there was another crew that had done it. I want to say just if you know Justin Huffam, a year where he was a PC, I believe. And he might correct me on this, and maybe I'm wrong, but I believe they self gathered too. And that might have been like 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I told Doug that I would <laughs> never, ever, um advocate for anybody ever again to self-gather from black mountain that was like my promise to doug as he after he chewed me out and then you know did what doug did but like still kind of like welcomed me back into the fold he didn't hold a grudge right um but he was like just promise me you'll never advocate for any other camp director to ever gather black mountain and so here i am advocating for <laughs> no other camp directors to ever ever 
ever self-gather Black Mountain again yeah, and save again. the ranch that time and money. Like you said, you were a foreman, worker foreman in 2007, stayed on again for maintenance 2008. Then you were the assistant director of cons in charge of the ISTs. Yep. I was ADC of ISTs in yeah. 8, 9, yep. and 10. And then that was also the first year where we had fall cons. So I got, you know, I didn't have to worry about finding another off-season position because we could just stay out, hang out till November. So yeah, there was only four or five of us to start those first three falls, but we pretty much just went out and surveyed trails. And then in 2010, it was a stream restoration survey. So got to I, me and Mike Serio spent the first two falls living at Apache Springs, surveying the Apache to Crooked Trail. Just we were like, well, you know, maybe we could stay in the cabin. And Mark Anderson was like, oh, yeah, sure, of course. And so we did. And that was great. So what does one do to survey a trail? Yeah, you go out with this little thing called an inclinometer or a clinometer. And it's just a handheld level. And as you tip it up and down, you can read numbers on it um, that correlate with a percentage, either degrees or percent grade of the trail. Percent grade is just the rise over run. So one foot up or down or two feet up or down for every hundred linear feet. And yeah, you just go out there with a partner and you look at each other through levels. And then when you get to where you want to be, you pound a stake in the ground. And uh, I mean, I could go and I could talk trail surveying all day. I love it. But yeah, you know, you it's it's kind of like a, pu a three dimensional puzzle because you don't want your trail to be too steep, and you don't want your trail to be too long and inefficient. Um, but you also want your trail to drain, right? So like we don't try and make any trails that are any steeper than one quarter of the cross slope of the hillside you're putting it on. So if a tr cross slope of a hillside at its steepest point along the fall line there is say twelve percent, you can go maybe three or four percent with your trail grade. You know, but if you're trying to like climb a pass that's a thousand feet above you, you know, you have to try and locate that trail in places where you have like, say, at least a 32% cross slope or a 40% cross slope. Um, and then you can make your trail go like eight or 10% and it won't, won't erode. So yeah, it's, we did that for two falls. We did Apache Crooked. We did Cedo to Hunting Lodge. We did Devil's Wash Basin to Deer Lake. What else? Copper Park to Baldy Town, and then Baldy Town to French Henry. Yeah. Those were all the surveys I was on. And then there were some other ones too, like Rick and Matt Wagner worked on Cook Canyon and also from Deer Lake down to Harlan, which John redid chunks of that later. Yeah, I don't know. It was fun. We got to do all these trail surveys. I think a lot of people, when they think about con the conservation department, they automatically think of trails, trail building, trail maintenance. So, you know how in the backcountry, like you were saying, you get like reaction sheets or surveys of like program or staff. Does the conservation department get like trail surveys? Like, do people complain about the trails at Philmont? Like, this needs fixed. Yeah. Or... Yeah. Sometimes, you know, but it's, it's um, not necessarily like a... it, I don't think there's necessarily like a form on the reaction sheet, to my knowledge. It seems like the trails it are gets a mention, but not that often. OK, because it seems like the trails are. Huh really well done oh yeah no yeah. um yeah i think philmont the just having got i got some perspective when i worked for the forest service and i worked at this one district in idaho and we had five people to maintain 750 miles of trail on this district in the salmon river ranger district you know and then philmont you know it's got 
300 and some miles of trail. And then you have five work crews, each of four to five people, plus all the conservationists. So like the amount of manpower that we at Philmont have to work, have to work with to design, build and maintain trails is probably, I don't know of anywhere else that has that amount of labor to work with. And I think as a result, you know, a lot of our trails are really good. Not to say the trails, I worked on a lot of really good forest service trails too. And aside on that, a lot of those were laid out by the Civilian Conservation Corps during the Great Depression. And so they had an army of trail workers back then. And the idea was to make all of the drainages in these big national forests, huge national forests, accessible for firefighting. And they, of course, it was the Great Depression, so they were giving people jobs. So they would have a 10-person crew, like in the Bob Marshall Wilderness, what became the Bob Marshall um, every side drainage would have a 10 person trail construction crew on it, you know, so you probably had a thousand people on a ranger district building these trails. And so, and, and they were using the same survey technique principles that we use today with regard to cross slope and controlling the grade and a clonometer shooting. They used probably different, uh, style clonometer called an Abney level back then. But anyway, a lot of the trails laid out on the national forests are laid out very, very well, but the amount of manpower for maintenance in these more recent times is nowhere near what Philmont has to work with. Yeah. yeah Philmont's got a, a world-class trails program, really. I, I wanted to talk to you about the invasive species. Weeds, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's really I, weeds because it wasn't like we were out like, you know, killing invasive, I don't know, animals. Yeah. Okay. So what do you, that was in, <laughs> <laughs> in 2011, you were in that role. How big is that team? Yep. And like, what do you guys do all summer? We sprayed things with poison. Yeah. And then we took rangers and we would have them chop thistle with pigmatics and shovels. Uh, we would take out ranger work days. But yeah, we started that program. And really in 2010, we convinced Mark that, hey, maybe we need to have an invasive species team because, you know, Mark was really big into invasive species control. Um, but like we didn't really have, you know, it was kind of orchestrated. He was orchestrating Ranger work days and like or would have cons do it. And then like there wasn't really a, like an effort. And then the ranch department would be out spraying. Bob had his guys that would go spray leafy spurge every year. And so we tried to kind of bring it all under like one roof and have a team whose job that was. And so Allison Vincent was the first foreman of that crew in 2010. And like weirdly, I was still ADC of this, but like it still kind of fell under me because it was. It was my program. So her and Steven Center and Michael Milkovich were the first invasives team. And, you know, we we did what we could with what we had, but we didn't have any money for herbicide back then. Um, but they did a lot with Ranger Workdays and they did a lot with mapping and trying to figure out, like, where these weeds were located around the ranch. And then the next year, the state and Forest Service threw a bunch of money at Philmont um, with this this invasive species grant that funded the program for like the next four or six years, I think. And so we had like, all of a sudden we had like all the bells and whistles. We could buy all this herbicide. We got biological controls, which are insects um, that eat exclusively the weed that you're interested in. Nice. Yeah. They're like trained pets. You're like, go forth, eat leafy spurge. Um, <laughs> so we got those and we tried to do a bunch of outreach and information pamphlets for all the scouts and the staff and everything. And yeah, but the team itself, we pretty much, we went out and we would spray weeds almost every day in the brutal sun in a Tyvek suit with like this backpack of poison on. And I do remember 
2011, I was CD at Abreu. And I remember looking out the window or like making lunch and I looked out the window of the cabin and it looked like that scene from E.T. <laughs> yeah, you like, guys had the Russian napweed. Yes. Um, it yes. was like the only place. It was one of like two places in all of Colfax County that had Russian napweed. And I think Katie and Josh Cook, Katie Fury and Josh Cook went down and took care of that. Yeah. Um, and I think they said they just like painted the because we had like a blue or purple dye or something that yes. you would put in the backpack so you could see where you sprayed and where you didn't. Yeah. And they went down and like <laughs> just like it was like Ghostbusters, just like yes. <laughs> painted that whole yard purple. I'll, I'll never forget that. Just like, <laughs> but that one worked. That was one of our more successful eradication efforts. I went and looked at it maybe last summer and there's none there anymore. So Hey. Which is, yeah, a lot of the other ones that came back yeah. once they stopped spraying. But Is that program done, right? Like, is it not funded anymore? It's not funded anymore. Um, so what has happened has been they took the bear researchers and the invasive species team and they merged them into the natural resource tech team. So the NERT, NRT team, which works for Casey Myers, the wildlife biologist. Okay. And they're supposed to kind of do the job of the bear researchers and the job of the weeds team. Gotcha. And also they're supposed to do a bunch of rangeland monitoring as part of the grazing program. So I think we're trying, I know this year, Casey and the full-timers were trying to get back a dedicated invasive species team because they think they realized it's more than like, it's a full-time job for a seasonal crew in itself. Um, but we, I don't think that happened this year, um, but hopefully, hopefully we'll get back to that. I don't okay. know. It's a game yeah. of whack-a-mole. I, I did my time. I did whatever those two or three summers where I would go out and spray with the crew all the time. And that was whew, that's yeah. a tough job. I believe but it. But it's necessary. Just for fun, some of the like oddities or quirks or day in the life moments that you've really enjoyed or have been really challenging. Work crew probably has like the largest amount of, oh my God, this is hard. There were times on work crew where we'd have to dig like all the latrines. I think we were digging them all at, like Cimarron River Camp or Visto Grande. And like we're digging and we're digging and it's hard clay. Whatever. We were like, we'll just do it. We're not going to come back. So we like dug till like five or six in the evening. And then we had to get all the way to Head of Dean because our food had been dropped there. And so we had to get there. And so we like dig all day and then we hike and we don't get into like 10 or 11 at night up at Head of Dean. And I remember just like, <laughs> like we were all dead. I was like, man, this crew is going to like mutiny and kill me. <laughs> um, but we got there and I remember, you know, not very scout like, but you know, how it is with the, the rolling tobacco, the drum rolling tobacco. Oh yeah. I've quit, I've been clean for 10 years, but back then I, I smoked drum yeah. and I remember rolling this cigarette and leaning back on one of the tent platforms. And I took like a Philmont muffin and just like, oh, shoved it in my mouth <laughs> and ate it and smoked a cigarette. And it was like the best dinner I had ever had in my life up to that point, I think. And then I just fell asleep like on my backpack didn't even like take out like my gear sleeping pad bag just fell asleep and wow. i woke up and it was like 10 o'clock the next morning i was like oh holy moly yeah you know, and i look and the rest of the crew was like still sleeping and then we had to i think we were based out of there for a couple of days so we were able to just do day runs and recover yeah. you took a couple summers off then came back in 2019 and 2020 as a conservation researcher. What is that? Sounds elusive. <laughs> yeah, it's very elusive. That's how I like it. I just like yeah. to disappear into the backcountry and not have people question me. Especially um, in 2020. 
Oh, 2020 was awesome. That was, I mean, it was a tragic year for everybody, my family included, but you know, the work-wise it was, it was very awesome. So in between, I worked for the forest service at Spotted Bear Ranger District, which is up in the Bob Marshall wilderness in Northern Montana. And if there's a place that I love as much, or maybe even don't tell anybody, maybe you'll even as slightly more than Philmont sometimes it would be, it would be Spotted Bear. It's a very much like a, I think a vibe Philmont people would recognize, especially conservation. It's like this backcountry ranger district where you live um, the whole season with your coworkers. They have like two off the grid ranger stations, Big Prairie and Schaefer Meadows that have no road access and are each like 20 to 30 miles off the road. So you have to like either hike in or take a mule train in. Um, Schaefer has a little airport, but like most businesses just goes in on foot. Wow, and then the cool. main station, Spotted Bear proper, is at the end of this 55-mile dirt road that's a dead end coming down from Hungry Horse, kind of by Glacier National Park. And you just follow the Flathead River down and down and down. And it's basically like the Ponyal Road. So it's like washboarded and potholed. And like it takes close to two hours to drive wow. just from town. So like you're down there and you live with your coworkers and you just you have a, a really good time and then you build a lot of trail and yeah. cut a lot of trees. Yeah. I know this is kind of an aside from your actual question, but I just had to, I got no. a plug spotted bear. Yeah. So you, it was a good time. You, you did that for several summers till you came back five. as five summers. Okay. So you came back as that conservation yep, as researcher. the researcher. And so when I, those first two years in 19 and 20, um, I was still working for the forest service in the summer. And then I had enrolled in a PhD program at Montana state. Yeah, like the backstory on that, I guess back it up a little bit. Uh, one of the last projects in 2010 in Falcons was Mark Anderson had me and Michael Sudmeyer go up to Benito, to Bobien and Benito Creek and do an erosion control. Yeah, basically a, a level two Rosgen assessment is the technical terminology for trying to determine whether this stream is healthy and or needs restoration treatments. And so we did that and we determined that it did. Neither of us had ever done that kind of assessment before, but like Mark sent us to some workshops and was like, oh yeah, you guys are good. He gave us like a book. And we started trying to put together ideas for restoration on Benito Creek. And you know, that it took a while to get that getting up to get that off the ground, really. Like Carrie Anderson and John Selly, they would still go out and collect a lot of cross-sectional data and longitudinal profile data on that stream in the next five or six years. But like, we never really got moving with restoration. But one of the things that Mark had been like, oh, well, we should get a graduate student to head this up. You know, and at the time I was didn't really see that being me back in 2010. But when I went back to school, I was like, you know, maybe I can make this Benito project my project for yeah. for, for my PhD. You've been the stream restoration coordinator since did it start in 2000, 2021? Yeah. So those first two years where I was still working for the Forest Service and then pretty much just out by myself at Philmont in the falls, we were able to put together in that winter. Uh, an actual proposal for restoration and submit it to the state and the EPA. Nice. And they funded it for three years. So starting in June of 21, July 1st of 21, and running through June 30th of 2024. Yeah. So that's where we are now. And we're moving into the third year of that project. But basically what it let us do is hire a five-person stream restoration crew to go and build erosion control structures in that in that watershed. Let's paint a picture a little bit for listeners who maybe don't know much about this, yeah. me being one of them. So we're at Bonito Creek, which is down from Bobien Camp. And if you've been there, you can picture the little stream. Like when I was there, it was like a little stream that trickled yeah. 
down down the meadow. So why does a wetland like that degrade in the first place? Like, are you guys able to know why it's unhealthy? Yeah. And that's a really good question. And people have spent entire careers studying that, which is what I learned once I started to study it. And it's not so straightforward. Like our our idea, well, not just ours, but like to look at it, like most people would be like, oh, well, this has been overgrazed. And so it destabilized the stream banks and it's able to erode. Um, the more I've looked at it, the more I realize that's only maybe a piece of the puzzle. Because you see, if you, you know, if you drive around anywhere in New Mexico or Arizona um, or Southern Colorado, you know, you look at all the streams, especially closer down to the prairies. And, you know, they're not the same as a stream in Iowa or Pennsylvania or Maine or Montana, right? You know, they're, they're not, they don't really have a floodplain. They tend to look like a, a ditch, right? And, you know, that's like people call it an arroyo. You know, it's really kind of part of the, the southwestern landscape. You know, I think it, it begs the question, one of the big research questions is, why do these channels in size to form these ditch-like arroyos in the southwest, but like not in other places? And, you know, that is what's happening up at Bobien. You know, the channel is goes from being a nice distributed seep across the whole valley floor, maybe with like a smaller single channel. Um, and it goes over this big waterfall looking thing called a head cut. And then all of a sudden it's down in this 15, 10 or 15 or 20 foot deep arroyo. And then, you know, all the wetlands that are adjacent to it drain because you've dropped the water table that much. But, you know, if it was, yeah, let me think how to say this. If it was just grazing, then you probably wouldn't see this phenomenon happening all over the whole Southwest all at the same time, you know, and a lot of people thought, you know, it, ha it dated to the introduction of sheep and cattle, and that that may have had something to do with it and probably did. But when you really start to look at the geology of these valleys, and you look at the sediments that are in there, um, like if you go and dig a pit along the side of like Sealy Canyon or something like that, you'll notice that there's the outlines in the walls of these arroyos in the sediment that show um, an unconformity in geologic terms. So basically showing that it had incised in the past and formed an arroyo and then filled back up. And if you look closely and really look around, you'll notice that there's lots of these unconformities and that these watersheds have probably undergone for at least the past 10,000 years, 12,000 years since the last ice age ended, repeated cycles of downcutting and filling back up. <clears throat> you know, so it's not just as simple a question as grazing, no grazing, people putting a road in a place. It's that these watersheds are primed to respond in this way to disturbance. So, you know, maybe um, overgrazing or digging a ditch or a wagon road was the proximate trigger that caused an arroyo to form, but this was a system that that was how it was going to respond to disturbance. And yeah. so there's a couple theories out there. I don't want to like, I'm oversimplifying here and like I would get hammered if I was like to stand up in a conference and say this, but like a really part of what I think this is, is that the Southwest used to be a lot wetter during the ice ages during the Pleistocene, so 12, 20,000 years ago. And so you probably had, you know, richer, deeper soils forming on the hill slopes. And then you got the modern, the Holocene, you know, the end of the Ice Age happens. And especially at the lower eleva elevations, a lot of these areas become a lot more arid. And so the vegetation dies off and you still have this thick mantle of soil up on the hill slopes, right? But now there's less vegetation holding it down. So where does it go? It's transported into the valley into the valley bottom. Um, and it builds up these really thick layers of alluvium in these valley bottoms, and it's really fine-grained. 
um, which makes it erodible. And so you get these things in there. It's piled up so deep with alluvium, it makes them unstable. Sure. And so when you do get some kind of event, maybe in the past, there's been papers in Utah that have shown that there's maybe been seven or eight Arroyo forming events through the past 10,000 years that have like these channels of downcut and then boom, filled back in, downcut, filled back in. You know, so maybe at those other times, maybe it was droughts. Maybe it was that these valleys filled up with so much sediment that they became really steep. And then the water moving through them had the power to be able to erode them finally, where when it was, you know, less shallow, less sediment, it didn't have that stream power. So anyway, that's, you have, that's like looking at the bigger picture as to what's going on here. But a system like Benito, it's very different from a lot of the other watersheds in the Southwest in that it has these very extensive spring-fed wetlands along it. And a lot of them are piling up um, organic material that doesn't decompose because it's always saturated. And we call those, we call that material peat. And we call those wetlands fens. Um, they differ from a bog in the water chemistry a little bit. For instance, a bog would be very acidic and it would be fed by rainwater and not groundwater. A um, little academic hair splitting there. But basically what we have at Benito is a system that would be much more common up in the mountains in Colorado or in Montana or in Canada or like Siberia, you know, places that are much colder and wetter than New Mexico. And so this peat forming wetland system is very special and very rare in the Southwest and also with drought and a warming climate. It is going to be, we're going to get to see whatever changes are going to happen to these systems. We're going to get to see them at places like Benito Meadow first. You know, it's going to give a pre, it's a preview to what's going to happen to Colorado and Montana and Canada in the coming decades. So it makes it one, a high priority for study. And then two, also a high priority for conservation. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's how we were able to sell, sell the EPA and the state on helping us hire a restoration crew and then buy the supplies and everything like that. And so what we're doing <clears throat> is we're building stone structures on, I mentioned the head cuts, and that's the sections of channel where it transitions from an uneroded stream channel that flows across the whole valley into an incised channel. And it looks like a little waterfall. Yeah. Um, so we're building these armored stone structures on those called Zuni bowls. And then in the sections that are already incised, what we're doing is we're putting in these things called beaver dam analogs. And they're what they sound like. You go and play beaver and you pound this line of posts into the ground across the stream channel. And then you dam it up with willows and mud and slash and you form a pond. And the idea is that that pond will recharge the groundwater. The pond will also um, allow sediment to be deposited behind that. So hopefully we can fill in these incised areas and then bring the water table and the stream bed all the way back to the valley bottom. And then the last part of it is we're planting willows and we're putting up seven foot elk fencing around it, around a lot of these areas so that hopefully the grazing aspect won't be a factor for these highly sensitive areas, you know, and willows and woody vegetation will be able to recover. I think that probably one of the biggest transitions related to grazing wasn't necessarily the grazing of the grass. It was the grazing of the woody vegetation because that has like the big root structure you know, and when willows or cottonwoods die, they fall into the stream and they make log jams and they make a very messy system in which water is not very efficient in flowing down the channel. Um, so what we're trying to do is restore that channel complexity and that deliberate inefficiency to the system so that when you have a drought year, you know, the water from a rainstorm or the previous year's snowmelt or the groundwater 
instead of just running down that channel and down to Abreu and out to Texas, it will hang out in ponds and groundwater and wetlands and will be able to maintain uh, more water on the landscape during the dry years. Whoa, sweet. Yeah. We're going to have a workshop in July for the public. We did one this past year. So if anybody wants to come uh, and splash around in Benito Creek. I have like my brain's on fire. I have like so many questions. How much uh, space are we talking? Like the whole meadow? Like, yeah, where? we're doing, we've broken the stream down into like nine sections. And each of them are kind of getting a different treatment depending on what's going on there. The sections we're really focused on are the ones farther down in the meadow because those are the ones with the really deeply incised sections of channel. We're doing treatments all the way from the cabin at Bobien all the way down to Lower Benito Camp. Yeah, where does it go? Where does the water end? Yeah, it uh, goes down to the bottom of that meadow and then it drops down this right. really steep waterfall covered section of uh, of stream bed down to a Abre old Abreu. Okay. That's what yeah. I figured. It goes like Benito Creek. It runs at this very mild grade, maybe like one or 2% from Bobien down to lower Benito. And then it plunges at like, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, but like five or 6%. It drops like 2000 feet in like a mile on that last section. And yeah. like the, the whole morphology of the system is actually the crater peak volcano, which is now just a volcanic plug. Um, if you can see it from Rayado Canyon, but about four and a half million years ago, that spilled this big lava flow out and it blocked the entrance to Benito, the mouth of Benito Creek. And then it flowed out and it became Fowler Mesa and Uraca Mesa. So if you look at those, right, they're like these weird mesas. But what they are is lava flows. And it's lava that had previously flowed through valleys. Um, but the lava being harder than the surrounding rocks remained. And over the past 400 million or four million years, everything around those has eroded down. And so now you're left with these mesas. But that little section that crosses Benito Creek prevented Benito Creek from eroding down into a deep V valley like Rayado Creek or North Fork Uraca Creek. So you have this like weird morph valley morphology that is it's actually very similar to glacial valleys up in the northern Rockies hmm. where you would have this like very mellow grade. Because for these kinds of wetland systems, you know, if the stream was 10, 8 or 10 percent like the Rayado River, you know, it would have enough stream power that it would never deposit a wetland. It would just carry all that sediment downstream and you would have just a normal single channel uh, stream. But this yeah. lava flow back in the day created this valley with a very mellow grade, which let these wet meadows develop. Cool. Geology, man. Geology. <laughs> lava mountains. Um, Talking about your team, is this Philmont staff? Like Philmont BSA is hiring your team or is the so it's it's a labor split between the state EPA and Philmont. As the project ends, EPA will cover 60% of the total cost and Philmont has to cover 40%. Okay. And the Philmont part can be made up as in-kind donations. It doesn't have to be cash. So for instance, you know, you drive a Philmont truck for work purposes for the project, you get like 55 cents per mile. And then if a scout works on the project, you know, it's like counts like 20 some dollars for every scout hour or something like that. So we get that to was... make up our match. Yeah. Largely in kind. That was my next question. Do you guys interact with the scouts, the participants? Yeah. And so the first two years, we only interacted with special treks. So we'd have the Rocks Crews and the TCT came this year. This year, they built BDAs. The year before that, they did this big rock rundown at Lower Benito, which is basically like, it's what it sounds. You like take an eroding area and you just cover it in rock so that it holds the, holds the dirt down, grass grows up around the rocks. Where did the rock <laughs> come from? 
Yeah, we harvested a lot of it from like Lover's Leap and yeah. Fowler Pass and the switchbacks going up from Crater Lake. You know, and we had this dump trailer of all the people in this who deserve thanks. The crew, of course, for moving all the rock, but also Motorpool for lending us the vehicle and trailer that allowed us to like collect all this building material over the past couple years. Yeah, yeah. we have a dump trailer from, from Motorpool. And uh, yeah, so it's a, just gathering the material is like this is a Herculean task for sure. And then you you said um, special treks the first year or two. Yep. And then this year we're going to be an IST site. So we're going to have a five-person work crew that's going to deal with like the more technical project aspects. So building the last really big Zuni bowl we have to do, putting in the fence corners, because actually building a fence corner with proper bracing is very technical and hard. And then probably like we have a heavy-duty hydraulic post pounder that's really dangerous and I feel like could take off fingers, but we use it to pound the lines of posts in the creek bed that then you weave the willows and mud into for the BDAs. So we'll have the work crew doing those aspects. And then the scouts are going to be doing things like putting the mud and branches in the BDAs and making the ponds. And then also putting on in all the line posts for all these X closures. So we got all told, I think there's going to probably be upwards at six miles of seven foot fencing when we're done. Oh. And so, yeah, we're going to have scouts up there digging a lot of, a lot of fence posts. It will be very, um, very helpful. Speaking of fun tools, do you have like a favorite tool? Just in general for all the trail work, conservation work, I got to go with the Pigmatic. You know, it's classic. You can do a lot with it. Yeah, I was talking about this with like another guy this past weekend that I know up here that did trail work. And we, yeah, he 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 was a solid McLeod man himself. And I have to say there is a special place in my heart for the McLeod because you can make trail tread and backslope look really, really pretty with it. But I think I just got to go with the Pigmatic. Where do you guys live all summer? We live in Rod Taylor's old cabin at Lower Benito. No way. Yeah. That's and awesome. so when Rod retired, I think it hadn't really gotten a whole lot of use. It was an epic adventure just cleaning that cabin. You know, and I think maybe for even the last few years before Rod retired, I don't think he was, I think he was doing a lot of day runs and commuting and maybe not staying the night there. So we went up and we asked Dave if we could clean it out and use it. And the agreement was like, sure, as long as like, you know, the Cowboys, you know, you got to just got to share. And so we were like, fine. So we go in there and it was it was a horror movie, dude. It was so like at Philmont, we called them wood rats. Oh, yeah. 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 Everywhere else they would call them pack rats. I think they're genus Neotoma. Um, anyway, they're, so they're yeah, they are they're huge. The, they're huge. And they are the North American <laughs> native species of rat. Uh, They're solitary creatures and they love, like their name implies, to get things and make them into piles, you know, and they make their nests and they'll steal your keys or your firewood and they'll make a nest out of it. Yeah. So the other thing they do, and this is really gross and I didn't totally process this going in, but they like will pile up leaves and sticks and car keys or whatever shiny objects they find, but then to bind their nests together they pee on it and then they Ugh. poop on it and then they pee on it more Ugh. and their urine has a very high sugar content because they evolved to actually use it as a building material. And so it makes this really, really hard material and it's called archaeologists call it amber rat or rat tight. And it's, it's like a rock and to break it, break these nests apart, you have to literally hit them with like an ax or a sledgehammer. Um, and if you one, they smell terrible. But when you break them apart, if you hold it up to light, it looks like amber, you know, oh, like from Jurassic oh Park with the bugs living in it. Oh, my gosh. And so they had built like these nests all over that cabin in two of the three rooms. One room, the bunk room was like mostly OK, but the kitchen, it was like it was a nightmare. And the storage room in the middle, 
was even worse. Yeah. So we, we, we took a truck with a power washer and a water tank and we spent like four days up there and we would just go in and like dump like raw bleach on all these nests and then chop them apart with axes and then power wash them. And we eventually got it clean, but oh my gosh. now yeah. that cabin's beautiful. And then we had to kill all the rats, um, which you feel bad. Cause like they're the size of like a German shepherd. I mean, you, you know, you'd feel really bad if you had to kill a German shepherd, but they are destructive. And like when we first destroyed their nests, but hadn't kicked them out yet, they'd come back in at night and you'd hear them and it'd be like, boom, boom, boom on the rafters above you. And like, then you'd hear like dragging noises and you'd wake up in the morning and they would take all the firewood every night from next to the wood stove and they would drag it and they would just position it all over like the different bunk rooms, you know, and you'd hear them as they like dragged it up over like the, you know, the little like the door <laughs> frames and stuff. And like you'd shine a light and they disappear and then they come back and you just hear like, and they they drag like this piece of firewood that was like twice as big as them. I feel across like the floor. Disney or Pixar or something needs to like this needs to be like the next unsung hero of like some Pixar movie for like kids. <laughs> the rats should be the heroes. Yeah, I mean, some, I yeah the like, rats. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. They're very they're very cute. And I think honestly, we didn't kill them all for the kids. What we really did was find out where they were coming in because like there's an infinite number of rats in the forest, I'm sure. Um, but we were able to like seal up the biggest holes. And that really kind of yeah. <laughs> turned the tide. Are there a lot of areas on Philmont property that could use something like stream restoration? Like where where else would you pinpoint to go? Yeah, now? no, that's a great question. And thought about this. And I think that the areas that we really need to target for restoration, for streams anyway, you get into forestry and that's kind of a different, different ball game. But I have thought a lot around Cedo Creek, like I'm thinking other incised channels, you know, where you could like build a BDA across the valley bottom and it's going to hold water. You know, you look at like Fish Camp and the Agua Fria and North Fork Iraca, and those streams are pretty healthy as they are, kind of for a lot of those, maybe just kind of letting them be. And then, um, so I've thought like Cedo Creek downstream of the dam, so kind of where it crosses under the highway. And then runs behind admin and motor pool and everything. I think yeah. that that's pretty would be a really good demonstration project there because one, it needs it. Two, you it would be in a place where a lot of public and Philmont visitors could see it without having to go way into the backcountry. Yeah. And then I think the South Fork Uraka would probably be pretty ripe fruit as well down through Lover's Leap. Yeah. And up towards Miners, you know, and yeah. those are systems too. If you look. Like I've kind of watched it from year to year and the willows in there, you know, when they put the cattle in there, if it's a dry year when the cows don't have a lot of grass to eat, they'll really hammer the willows really hard, you know, and then the willows, they generally in those streams have been coming back. Um, it might take them a year or two, but I think if we were to like do some things like putting some BDAs in and then fencing like some of those areas right at the stream bottom, you wouldn't have to do a tall fence, just a four foot one would work. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really bring back that riparian habitat with that woody vegetation and yeah. then i think you'd see things like beavers and things return on their own because they eat the the willows and then they build their own dams um one more time when is your open house for yeah the, so i don't have the final dates nailed down yet but i think it's going to be it'll probably be the 8th 9th 8th and 9th of july okay and people can come out like you're taking us at like out to lobo yeah. And so what we did last year was we reserved a block of tents at PTC 
for participants. You could eat meals at the dining hall for dip breakfast and dinner. And then we would commute out to Lobo, work all day, you know, have trail lunches and then come back for dinner. And then we did that Saturday and Sunday. Awesome. And we'll, I think we're going to go for the same same recipe again this year. Thank you so much for enlightening us and kind of like digging deeper uh, into um, this stream restoration thing. Um, Cause there's all these really great photos on social media about you guys out there doing the work. I feel like it's really a really cool project. So I'm glad to give it some attention. Thanks, yeah. And yeah, this is, I want to come honor to be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan. Ah, so, thanks. <laughs> where else can I go and listen to my friends tell all their, their stories, you know, and Who, have them be recorded for forever. For posterity as well. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations on on your work, and I think you said you're hoping to graduate in December. So rooting yep. for you. That'll Thank be, you. You'll be a doctor, Seth Mangini. Doctor something. I don't know. <laughs> doctor <laughs> digging holes and chopping trees. Do you want to nominate anyone, any of your friends, or any other anyone to be on the show? Oh, I'm trying to think. I feel like you haven't had Mike Serio yet, have you? No. You got to have Mike. How about, and also Michael Sudmeyer, Crockett. Do you have an do you have an an eleventh essential you want to share? Eleventh essential. Oh, I don't know about that. The Danishes maybe from the commissary, but yeah. you have to throw them in your backpack and let them get like squished before you eat them. Otherwise, they're not very good. <laughs> oh, um, you on land in Cimarron now? Do you want to yeah. talk about that? Yeah, I bought. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, I bought a little plot. Is yeah, it across um, from the river, like where Sean and Leela's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. we're neighbors. Really excited about that. You know, I don't eventually would like to put a little house there. That'd be great. But for now, I just have a camper. That's awesome. You know, That's... Off Coco Street. I used to, back when I was working in the falls, I would live with my friend Steve on East 12th Street, <clears throat> which is known in somewhere on as Coco Street. Here's a, here's a story. So yeah, this okay. is cool. Yeah. So it's called Coco Street. And we always thought that it was Coca Street because the Coca family owned a bunch of the houses on there. But only recently I find out that it's called Coco Street after the Spanish legendary boogeyman called El Coco. Oh. And it was called this because all those little like quirky adobe buildings, people would look at them and be like, oh, it's kind of creepy down there. Um, but El Coco is like this skeleton horseman with like a skull that would like carry a skull in his arms, kind of like, you know, Sleepy Hollow or something like that. You know, the local Hispanic folks would, it was a legend they would tell their kids to scare them when they were bad. They'd be like, oh, don't do that. El Coco will come and get you. And so, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's where you live. <laughs> Got to live on Coco Street, and yeah. which I feel like is a really was a really special experience because it's like, you know, old Cimarron. It's right under where the Santa Fe Trail ran. It's one street over, but you have to go down Coco Street to get to it. To get there. Yeah. Had that been something you like had been thinking about doing for a long time? Getting oh, yeah. I've been I've been surfing property listings for like 10 years since for like 10 years. Finally in a position to do it. Yeah. You know, after. Do you have water access? Yep. Nice. Little section of river. Nice. And then got city water so i've Good. got like a little frost free spigot so if, nice. if anybody ever needs a place to camp let me know happy to have visitors cool 